This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. I am so glad you are listening, and if you like this podcast, you may also like my Conversations from a Page Literary Salon. To check it out, go to cfapage.net. If you have personalized book questions or feedback on my podcast, I can be reached at cindyhburnett at att.net. I partner with Murder by the Book for this podcast, and Winter Counts can be purchased there. The link is in my show notes. Today, I am interviewing David Heska Wambli Wyden. He is an enrolled member of the Sichangu Lakota Nation and is the author of the novel Winter Counts and the children's book Spotted Tail. He received his MFA in creative writing from the Institute of American Indian Arts and teaches writing at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop. He's a professor of Native American Studies at Metropolitan State University of Denver and lives in Colorado with his two sons. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed interviewing him. Welcome, David. I'm really looking forward to talking with you about Winter Counts. How are you today? I am great, and thank you for having me. Well, I absolutely loved your book, and I cannot wait for everyone else to get to read it. So why don't we start with you just telling me a little bit about the book? Sure. Winter Counts is a literary thriller. Uh, It's being published by Echo HarperCollins, and it is set on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Now, I am an enrolled citizen of the Sichangu Lakota Nation, and that is our uh, reservation. And so it is one of the first thrillers set on a native reservation, and certainly the first one set on, on my particular reservation. And it is the story of Virgil Wounded Horse, who is a hired vigilante, and he steps in when the federal government will not enact justice. That is it in a very brief nutshell. Well, I was fascinated with the idea that while the U.S. says the federal government has to be the one to handle felonies versus the tribal council, that then they don't handle many of them, and maybe fascinated is the wrong word, more sort of horrified, but I didn't realize that the way that was balanced and how it plays out for the tribes. Yeah, let me, let me set this up for folks that, that may not know about it, which is usually most everyone. So American Indians, there are a number of laws passed by the U.S. Congress that apply only to us, and one of them is a law passed way back in 1885 called the Major Crimes Act. So the Major Crimes Act is a law that says if there is a serious felony committed on native lands, native authorities do not have the power to prosecute those individuals. Even if they've caught the person red-handed, you know, he or she is in custody, uh, they have to call up the FBI and the U.S. attorneys and hand the offender over and say, okay, now you must prosecute this felony crime. However, what is, I guess, terrible about the whole situation is the federal authorities are declining to prosecute anywhere from one-third to one-half of all violent felonies. And so the offender is simply let go. And so you have child abusers, rapists, murderers who are set free to offend again. And that is the setup for the book because what has occurred is there has sprung up a class of professional vigilantes on native reservations that you can hire this person and a hired vigilante will go after the offender, the person who hurt your your daughter or your mother or your son, and will beat him up for a price. And this is just a, a very, very sad state of affairs. And I recently published an essay in the New York Times in July, arguing that it is time for the Major Crimes Act 
to be amended, if not terminated altogether. And if, if the federal government is not going to get rid of the Major Crimes Act, then we need to start funding criminal justice on reservations more effectively so that people can be safe in their homes. So that is, again, sort of the long and short of it. Well, it's an appalling situation. I truly had no idea that in 2020, that was the state of things. But definitely, it just seems such a a crazy system to have to go outside of the system that's in place and hire a vigilante to try to take care of your problem. Well, absolutely. And so the book is the story of one of these hired vigilantes, Virgil Wounded Horse. And so he makes his living by going after child molesters and rapists and bad people. You know, uh, folks hire him to get justice. But he is, I hope, a a complicated uh, character, and he's uncomfortable to a degree with being a vigilante. He realizes that there there must be a better solution. So the book is also about personal identity. Uh, Virgil is what we call an ayesca, which in the Lakota language means it's kind of a slur for half-breed. It originally meant translator or speaks white, but now it's kind of an insult. And he is an ayesca. He is a half-native. So he's struggling with his own Lakota identity. So that's another theme of the book is, you know, do does he fit in and can he accept being Lakota? So so the, the book tells a number of stories, uh, the story of the Major Crimes Act and criminal justice, his, his struggle for identity. And there are a number of subplots as well, including that of his ex-girlfriend, Marie, and his nephew, Nathan. So there's a lot going on in the book, and I'll stop there. Well, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was the cultural identity versus assimilation issue, which you do deal with a fair amount in the book and, again, is a very relevant issue in 2020, how you maintain your own identity, but also try to join in whatever group of people you're living with or near. Yeah, it's a complicated question, and one that that I'm certainly living out, and I, I obviously borrowed from my own experience. So I live in Denver, Colorado. Again, I am a citizen of the, we're called the Rosebud Sioux Tribe in English and in our language, the Sichangu Lakota. So I am a citizen of that nation, but I live in Denver. So I live in this major city. I travel back to the reservation as much as I can. And I have two, two kids, ages 13 and 14, and I'm struggling to raise them with a sense of their own native identity. And what does it mean to be indigenous in Denver, Colorado? And how can I get them to appreciate their own culture. And it, it's, it's a struggle at times. I, I take them to the reservation as much as I can, but they hate going there because there's not a lot to do there. There are five restaurants on the res, if that, uh, no movie theaters. They're, they're taken away from their video games and their friends. So they don't always love going there, but I think it's, it's important. So this struggle of hanging on to your culture versus assimilating to the dominant national culture is one for which there's no easy answer. And I I do grapple with it in the book. Which I think is great because I think it helps people understand more the struggle back and forth and how you can try to resolve that so that you do maintain your own identity, but also, as you said, are able to live in the dominant culture comfortably. There's a fair amount of discrimination too. Is that something that Indigenous people are really encountering a lot today? Yes, yes, there certainly is discrimination, especially in the border towns around a reservation. Natives will be treated poorly when they enter certain stores. They'll be asked for ID. They'll be, they may not be served. It's sort of a, an ugly situation. And yeah, it's, 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 it's an unfortunate state of affairs. And I do portray 
a few incidents of that in the book, including one where Virgil goes after a, a racist motel owner. So yeah, discrimination certainly is, is still a problem in Indian country. The other question I had for you was about the combination of English names and Lakota names. So how are they chosen? Some seem very positive, others like Delia Kills in Water or Teresa Bad Milk. And how does it happen? Yeah, oh, that's a great question, one I haven't uh, been asked before. So names in Lakota culture um, traditionally would shift. Um, You would not necessarily have one name throughout your entire life. For example, the great Lakota warrior, Crazy Horse, which pretty much everybody has heard of, uh, when he was a child, he was known as Curly, which is, you know, somewhat less awe-inspiring because his, <laughs> his hair was supposedly curly. But in traditional Lakota culture, you you earn a name by maybe some great deed or, or an act of bravery or something like that. So names traditionally would shift. However, um, when the European settlers came and sort of forced this Western system of last names, that sort of froze in place the names that everybody had. And so now last names are kind of passed on. Now, having said that, there's a related issue of a spirit name. My spirit name is Cheska Wambli, uh, which means roughly translated mountain eagle. So so that is a, a name which you are given by your spiritual advisor after he or she prays for a period of time and, and comes up with a name that, that's appropriate for you. So yeah, names in the Lakota culture are, it's, it's a complicated and, and shifting territory. But then we have the Americans came in and said, well, you guys have to have a final last name. And so there's also like the, the last name that ap- appears on birth certificates. So you really have three different sets of names, which I know is tremendously confusing. Some of the Lakota names in there, I, I mean, I, I just made up a lot of them and I use them obviously to kind of imbue a literary flavor sometimes to kind of give you a hint of this person is good or bad or so that, you know, the, the beauty of Lakota names is I could sort of use that, that tradition. So, so that's why you see some names that are maybe less positive than others. Oh, and I love that. I was just really, just made me curious as I continued to read. So we've talked a little bit about it, but how did you come up with the subject matter for this book? Well, the subject matter, again, I've known about the Major Crimes Act and the problem of criminal justice enforcement on Native reservations for, for years, decades even. And, and I became aware, oh, at least 15 years ago, about these Native enforcers, vigilantes. And I, I knew of it, and I was always kind of outraged by the situation. And then when I began writing, the, it, it hit me. It's like, well, I need to write a short story about one of these enforcers, and, and indeed, I, I did. I wrote a short story also called Winter Counts, which I published in a, a journal called Yellow Medicine Review, published it in 2014. So the, the inspiration for the book came from my own knowledge of what goes on on reservations. I am a professor of Native American studies, but of course, a lot of my knowledge comes from the community as well as books. So I used that inspiration to write the short story, and then I later decided to expand the short story into a novel. Did you have to do a lot of research? You know, my research came more like making sure that I got slang correct. I, I live in Denver, not on the res, even, and I'm not a fluent Lakota speaker by any stretch of the imagination. So my research really entailed going back to the res and talking to some of my family members that still live there. My, my first cousin, Jim Cordry, has been a wonderful resource, and he would say, no, 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 nobody calls it that. Or, you know, here's the better slang word. So getting the slang correct, 
you know, and also I went to the university on our reservation, Sinti Gleshka University, and I worked with some folks there to make sure that I had the Lakota words in the book correct. And they helped me and they caught me from making some really embarrassing errors. I should note, though, that I'm sure there are still some and they are clearly my fault. I don't blame the good folks at Sinti Gleshka at all. So, so the research was more on the margins, I would say. Well, you just raised another issue I had a question about, the local tribal colleges. I was unaware that was even a thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? About tribal colleges? Yes, I was interested. I wanted to learn more about it. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So there is a very vibrant network of what are known as tribal colleges all around the country. And uh, the one that is on my reservation is, again, as I mentioned, Sinti Gleshka University. That is named after, that's the Lakota word for spotted tail who is the great uh, uh, leader of our nation uh, back in the 1800s. I did, in fact, write and publish a children's book on the life of Spotted Tail for middle grade readers because there had not been one before. It's published by Raycraft Books. And I, I bought a bunch of copies and I gave them for free to all of the schools and all of the Lakota reservations. But coming back to tribal colleges, tribal colleges are a really necessary part of the higher education fabric of this country because a lot of native kids are not able or willing to leave the state to go to college. And so tribal colleges fill that need. They are just wonderful. Um, now, again, they're really, really, really underfunded, which is problematic. But you know, maybe a native person can't leave the reservation because they have family issues, or college is expensive, right? I mean, <laughs> You know, and people think that we get free tuition everywhere. That's just not true. It's one of these myths. They also think that we get a, a monthly check from the government. It is not true. So college is expensive. And so for a lot of Native kids living on reservations, the, the tribal college is where they can go and study and still live at home and, and get a degree and really advance themselves. I mean, as a professor, I'm obviously a big believer in education. I'm a first-generation college student. Neither one of my parents graduated from college. I didn't know how the entire system worked. I didn't know what a FAFSA is, which is, of course, the form you use to get financial aid. And so tribal colleges, again, I, I, I don't know how many there are, but, but dozens, uh, dozens and dozens. And, and they're just so necessary. But again, I just wish we could get them funded the right way. So they are on the reservation, wherever they are, whichever group they're for, they're on that particular reservation is generally how it works. Yes, almost exclusively, they're, they're reservation-specific. Now, I'm sure somebody would, listening to this would be like, well, what about this college or that college? I'm sure there are exceptions. But in general, they tend to be on the reservation and serve almost exclusively reservation students. Oh, that's fascinating. That was just something I'd never heard about before. That's one of the reasons I loved reading your book, because I felt like I learned so much. Thank you. One of the things that I loved was there is no word for goodbye in Lakota because of the idea that we are connected forever. I thought that was such a great sentiment. And I felt throughout the book that you kind of came back over and over again to the, the concept of peace and handling things in a more peaceful manner versus the way sometimes Western people do. I, I really liked that. It resonated a lot with me. Well, thank you. And, and again, if, if any Lakota people happen to be listening to this, I'm sure they're jumping up and down right now and saying, well, what about doksha? So we in Lakota, we do have a number of words that have sort of become substitutes for English words. So there is no word for goodbye, but there is a substitute. You can say doksha, which has become sort of like later on or something like that. 
but to your larger point about handling things in a peaceful way, look, Native traditions, especially in the justice system, Native justice has always been more about reparations and making injured people whole than it is about sanctions and punishment and retribution. So there's kind of a clash between Native ideas of justice and proper punishment and the Western idea. And and Native reservations are, are really struggling with this. How do we merge an indigenous worldview with Western worldview? And and there really is no no easy answer. And and I hope that struggle is reflected in the book. It definitely is. And yes, I think that struggle began when white people showed up on this continent, however many hundreds of years ago. But yes, I think unfortunately it still seems to be a struggle and it's a shame. I think our system could really borrow a lot more from the Lakota system and just any of the indigenous systems and and learn a lot. Well, I'll jump in on that and I'll say one thing. This is not really in the book, I don't think, but I I teach again Native American studies at, at Metropolitan State University of Denver. There are two things that my students who are not Native are always stunned by. Native spirituality, Native religion was criminalized in the United States until 1978. So it was actually a felony crime for Native people to conduct their spiritual ceremonies. And so we were outlawed from doing our our religion. And so it was done at night, underground, away from the police. But but that, that is an example. We're taught in this nation that we have freedom of religion in the First Amendment. And that's true to a point, but it never applied to Native people. It wasn't until 1978 a federal law was passed, which again allowed us to actually practice our religion. So that, that's sort of an example of the clash between the Western governmental system and Native values. And again, my students are just stunned. They're like, wait, you mean it was a crime just to practice your religion? Yep, that's what I tell them. And they're just absolutely stunned. I had no idea. That's horrible. So I guess someone just decided to take that on and eventually got the law repealed in 78? It was the Democratic Congress that, that passed it. There were a series of laws that, that opened up uh, Native spirituality again. Now, you know, to be fair, this law was deeply enforced in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. I mean, they would actually throw people in jail for doing what we call a sweat lodge. In the 60s, it wasn't enforced heavily, but it still had a chilling effect on Native people. We have a very sacred ceremony called the Sundance, and and it was not practiced openly until really, you know, the 1980s. And and this is, you know, our most sacred religious ceremony, and we were afraid to do it. And, And again, that's just, it's kind of horrifying for a nation that prides itself on openness and tolerance towards religion. That also touches on a lot of what's been happening this summer and prior to that, but really coming to a head this summer is that the nation does pride itself on tolerance, but it's not really always tolerant at all. And so this is just another component of that. I, look, I agree. I agree. I'm, I'm writing another essay right now where I'm talking about that very issue. So yes. In your author's note, you speak about that you only talk about the Lakota ceremonies that have been previously written about. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I I, I approached that issue very thoughtfully and and very consciously and carefully because Native, you know, spiritual traditions, you know, are important to us. Now, there is an issue right now that it's frowned upon for someone outside of the culture to write about another culture's traditions. Now, that's not an issue here. I am Lakota, and so I'm certainly not appropriating 
anyone else's traditions. These are mine you know, and my people's. However, I wanted to approach the idea of writing about Lakota spirituality in a positive way. So when I started doing this, I set down some guidelines for myself. I said, first of all, I'm going to depict Lakota spiritual ceremonies, if I write about them, in a positive and respectful light. I am proud of my Lakota spirituality. My boys are proud of it. And I'm not ashamed of it. And so I, I want to portray it honestly, but, but respectfully and positively. But the other thing that I decided to do was that, you know, there are some aspects that are private and there are some things that I've been a part of that I, I will not write about. I, I did a very exhaustive study of what other Lakota writers have written about previously, including the very famous Lakota intellectual, Vine Deloria Jr. And I saw, here's what they have written about in various ceremonies. And they felt comfortable. And there are a couple of books by Lakota medicine men. I saw them writing about it. And I said, okay, I'm going to go up to where they wrote, but I'm going to go no further. And, and then I also talked to some people on my reservation. I said, I, you know, I showed them the work. I talked to them. Are you, you, know, are you comfortable with this? And they said, yes. So I, I feel comfortable that I, I did this in a, in a thoughtful way. And I will say the, the, the happy ending to this is there are lots of review copies going around. And I sent some out to some folks on the reservation. And I've gotten some calls from folks that had been estranged from their Lakota spirituality. They are Lakota. And they'd read the book and they, they would call me up and say, listen, after this, I'm returning now to our traditional ways. Well, your book really inspired me to embrace my spirituality. And I just, you know, I really teared up when I heard that because that, that was the whole point of this was to do something positive and, and something that would really benefit the Lakota people. So that, that's the story of that. Oh, I love that. And that has to definitely make you feel like you accomplished what you set out to do. Oh, very much so. So how did you come up with the title for this book? And tell me a little bit about what Winter Counts means. Sure. So I always knew the title for this book. A, a Winter Count is the calendar system traditionally for the Lakota people. It uses pictographs, little pictures, instead of numerals. So traditionally, a Winter Count would take a look, it would have a little drawing on maybe a buffalo hide or something of the most critical or important events of the year. And there would be a little, a little picture of that drawn. And so that's how you marked the passing of time. And so over time, you would have these winter counts of what had happened throughout the years. And so I, I've always loved this. And I knew that this would be the title of the book. And in fact, I fought to keep it. Um, my press did want to change it. They suggested changing it. But I, I said, no, no, this is, this is the right way. Because in the book, Virgil uh, and his sister, they have a, a reminiscence about a memory about cre drawing little winter counts when they were children. So it, it, it just resonated with me. Obviously, there's also another meaning in the English language that winter counts. Winter is a hard season. So I, I felt strongly and I just knew in my gut that this was the right title for the book. So I'm really glad that I kept it. No, me too. When I was reading the part about Virgil and his sister, and I thought of it, this title ties in perfectly, and then the double meaning of winter being so rough, and especially in South Dakota and some of the northern states. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a brutal winter. A couple of years ago, we had a Native woman who couldn't afford her propane bill, and she froze to death during a really tough uh, winter. My own auntie, who's just passed on to the spirit world about a year ago, I'm sad to say, she was a 90-year-old woman living really deep out in the woods, and all she had was a wood stove. So to keep herself warm in the brutal winter when it might be 10 below, 
she or her son would have to go out and, and get firewood for her. People don't understand that that it's it's brutal out there. Most people heat their homes with propane, but some people just use the old style of wood. And so, yeah, so winter counts, yeah, it works on so many different levels. Well, and that you raise another subject matter of the book that I also found sad was the poverty. Like you talked about very few restaurants kind of barely making it and, and the heating issue that just, I don't know, I found it very sad. Yeah, the, the poverty is, is rough, okay? I, I, I can't get away from this. The unemployment rate on the reservation hovers between 80 and 85%. I mean, that's just astonishingly oh, high. That you know, is. This country has been plunged into uh, misery with what did we have here during the worst of the pandemic, 25% unemployment, and it was just uh, terrible. Uh, but on the res, it's like 85%. And so most people have to rely upon the what we call commodity foods. These are foods that the government brings by. Now, it's not a handout. It's part of the bargain that was struck. The bargain that was struck between natives and the American government was, okay, you, we will take, we, the American government, will take the continent. We will give you these little patches of land that you won't be removed from, and we promise to give you health care and food forever. That's, that's the bargain that was struck. So, you know, I hear people complaining, oh, why do they get free food? Well, it, it, it's the bargain. We would happily take the land back, but I don't think that's <laughs> yes. going to happen. Right. But the food that is delivered is often not high quality. And that is another issue that I obviously bring up in the book, which is the problem of getting decent, healthy, sustainable food. Um, because of our bad healthcare system and our lack of decent food, the health outcomes are really bad on the reservation. The life expectancy for a man on the Lakota reservation is 47 years old, 47. Compare wow. that with 78 in, I think, you know, outside of the res for a, a, a man today. So it's, it, it really is a, a problem. Um, diabetes is a problem. So yeah, so all of these issues I felt I had to deal with. No, you did. And you incorporated all of them in an effective manner and it all went into the story. I didn't feel like it was going many different directions. I mean, it's all part of the story, but I just felt like I learned so much. What are Indian tacos? You mentioned them a number of times in the book, and that was not a term I was familiar with. Ah, okay. Thank you. I've not been asked that either. So there's sort of a debate in Indian country, whether they're called Navajo tacos or Indian tacos. So it's a piece of fry bread. And if you don't know what fry bread is, I'll explain. It's, it's fry bread is sort of, it's considered the traditional Indian food, but it's really not. Fry bread is uh, um, flour, baking soda, a little bit of salt made into a, a, a flat, you know, patty and then, and then deep fried. Um, our grandmothers invented it when they didn't have much to, to cook with. And so fry bread is sort of the iconic food, except that it's really unhealthy. So an Indian taco is a piece of fry bread and then like some taco meat and you know maybe some uh, lettuce and tomatoes and some salsa. Now the Navajos call them Navajo tacos, but we we call them Indian tacos. So that's sort of a debate. When you talk about fry bread in the book, and then you did explain what it was, and I was happy because I wasn't sure what it was initially, so I was happy to learn that. But then I didn't associate it with the tacos. That raises another question about the food. So there's a little bit of talk about an indig indigenous food revolution in the book. Is that something that's actually going on? Yes, it is going on all across the country. There are a number of folks ranging from California, the North, the Midwest, that are indeed sort of reclaiming native cuisine and, and saying, hey, you know, we need to go back and eat the foods of our ancestors. We need to toss out the sugar and the flour 
know, and, and the pork, because these were not traditional indigenous foods. And there is definitely a movement going on. That's not something that I made up. Now, I didn't base it on anybody in particular. There are, this is happening all over the country right now. You know, but, but it raises a question, which is, you know, can somebody who's struggling to make it on $8,000 a year, are they going to be able to afford some of these wonderful foodstuffs? Sometimes you, you, you've got to cook what you've got. And so that's yet another problem in, in Native culture. <laughs> So. Yes, and I think that's a problem a lot of places is, you know, unfortunately, the healthier foods are always more expensive. And so when you are trying to eat better and you don't necessarily have good health care either, it just, it's quite a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I want to be clear, though, I'm really a supporter of this indigenous food movement, and I, and I support it. I would love to see healthier food get on the reservations. But that, that again, that's going to take a a big reorganization as well of how we get food to reservations. And, you know, that that's just going to be a massive effort as well. But I loved that part of the book. I thought it was very interesting. And I was glad that he made progress, Lack made progress with the movement on the reservation. I was just curious if you had gotten the idea because it was actually happening or it was something that you were hoping would happen. Yes, it is. It is actually happening. So I did borrow from uh, a good. movement that is starting to coalesce right now. Well, that's great. Well, I love this book, as you can tell, and I'm hoping it's the start of a series. Is it? It is, as a matter of fact. I did sign a two-book deal with uh, Echo HarperCollins, and I am outlining and sketching out the broad narrative arcs of the second book, which is tentatively called Wounded Horse. Uh, I can promise you, you know, I'm contractually obligated, and I want to write the next book where there will be some new challenges for the characters of Winter Count. So it's, it's, it is happening, and that's a promise. Well, that's great news. I'm very happy to hear that. So I have one last question um, sure. before we wrap up and before I ask you about your recommended reads. So you reference it a little bit in the book, and I can recall in the past hearing a little bit about the issue, but Sioux versus Lakota. Can you explain to me that the Sioux is maybe a Western term and Lakota is, is the Native American term? Do I have that right? You do. You do. So Sioux is actually a French word uh, that means little snakes. It's an abridgment of, of the French word. And so for years, the term Sioux was uh, imposed upon the Lakota people. But Lakota people, I would say, really prefer the term Lakota because that's our word. Now, having said that, there are clearly still remnants of it. The official name of my nation is the Rosebud Sioux tribe. Okay, so that that is clearly... So it's it's still out there, but I would say... of folks prefer the term Lakota. Okay, good. Thanks for explaining it, because I was just curious. And as I said, when you referenced it in the book, I kind of was like, oh, I think I have heard that in the past. And um, so then I was curious what the difference was. So thanks for explaining it. Sure. Before we wrap up, I would love to hear about some books you've read recently that you really liked. Oh, boy. Well, this is always, you know, one of my favorite questions. And I I could talk on and on and on. But I'm going to talk about two, one that I haven't mentioned before, and one that I'm reading right now. So I think by the time this airs, my event will be over, but I'll be doing a reading and discussion with the wonderful writer whose name is William Kent Kruger. And he has a book called This Tender Land. Now, Kent Kruger doesn't need any help from me. I think his book is number 15 on the New York Times bestseller list for paperbacks. But I'm telling you, it's it's wonderful. I, and I really mean that. It is the story of two white boys who are placed into an Indian boarding school. So there are no issues here of Kent, you know, appropriating culture. 
but he it's it's a historical work of fiction set in the 1930s and he portrays what it was like in these native boarding schools and he really brings it alive and it really resonates with me because my own grandmother was a student at the most infamous of all of these boarding schools the carlisle industrial indian school if folks don't know the boarding schools about 40 percent of all native kids were taken by force away from their parents you know in the early 20th century you know they were removed taken across the country to these boarding schools where they were forbidden to speak their language uh forbidden to practice their culture. They were trained in these servants and, and laborers, and they were more often than not, unfortunately, sexually and physically abused. Uh, almost all of these boarding schools have had a little cemetery in back where they would bury the kids that had been murdered. Um, and he really brings it alive. And I just can't recommend this book enough. It, it's just, it's a joy. It's, uh, it's not a work of crime fiction. It's literary fiction, but it's uh, it's really a classic. So This Tender Land by William Kent Kruger is just a, a wonderful book. I'll recommend a, uh, a second one by a guy, a full disclosure, he's a friend of mine, and it is called Hillbilly Hustle by Wesley Brown. And this is out from West Virginia Press. It came out about, oh, six, eight months ago. And it is just a fun, fun sort of romp of crime fiction. It's all about uh, the lead character, Knox Thompson, He's got a pizza shop, but he gets involved in marijuana. And if you like sharp crime fiction, and it's also there's a lot of poker playing in there. It's just, you know, it, it it's on a smaller press. So you have to kind of search it out. But I promise listeners that if you look for Hillbilly Hustle by Wesley Brown and you read it, you're, you're going to have fun and you're going to be glad you did. So big thumbs up for Hillbilly Hustle. I haven't heard of Hillbilly Hustle. I'm going to have to look that one up. It sounds like it'd be right up my alley. You know, again, it's not getting as much distribution because it's on a smaller press. And so I just, I do hope people will give it a chance because it, it's, it's really worth it. Well, and I think coming out during the pandemic also has really made that more difficult for people, especially with smaller presses. Oh, absolutely. It was very nerve wracking for me six months ago or how, how, what was it, five months ago, all this happened. I didn't know where I was going to be at. Now I'm lucky in that Winter Counts has gotten a fair amount of attention. It's an Apple best book, an Amazon best book. It'll be on September's Indie Next best book of September. It's been gotten rave reviews, a couple other things I'm not allowed to mention yet. So I'm really gratified by the reaction. But yeah, I think some of the smaller presses have just had a harder time getting the word out. No, I agree. And I, I think that's just fabulous on your book. I was so excited to see that it was so many places. And I write a monthly column for a large publication here in Houston called The Buzz Magazines. And it's going to be mm. one of my October picks because I just thought oh. it, it was fabulous and it will resonate with everybody. So I'll make sure I send it to you when that comes out. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I just absolutely had a blast talking with you and learning more about the Lakota traditions and just more about your book. I, I really appreciate your time. Well, it was my pleasure speaking to you. So thank you. And thank you to all the listeners out there. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. David's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thank you to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope to see you next time. 
there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.